Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. For the past month, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The character of the kingdom is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. What is it? How do you enter it? We live in an age where people no longer believe in the authority of the Bible. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. They don't believe in the reality of the kingdom. And uh, so they've given up the notion uh, of a supernatural ideal coming into the real. You know, because today they're really skeptical of authority. You know, we don't like, we don't like the idea of the supernatural becoming real. We may not like it. Um, and it's because today people see authority as corrupting society. You know, and as a result, the empirical education, science, these things have become idolized, while authority figures have been demonized. And Jesus says that the reality of the human condition is desperate, you know, more than you can imagine. But the ideal, you can't forget about the kingdom of God. You have to think about the kingdom of God. The ideal, Jesus Christ, his kingdom, is more glorious than you could ever dream. And when you come to know Jesus as your savior, when you come to know Jesus as, as your king, the power of the kingdom, the power of the ideal comes into the real. It's, it's, it's a greater real than reality. And when that comes in and when that changes you in your real life, you don't escape reality. It comes into your reality. God uses you, he says in this passage. God uses you to bring the power of the kingdom into reality. Now, if you don't embrace this truth, you're going to be on a roller coaster ride of confusion and clarity, you know, of optimism and pessimism. If you don't embrace this truth, you're going to either end up, remember the book, you know, Voltaire's Candide? You know, we read it in high school, a lot of us. A lot of us, we're going to oscillate back and forth between Dr. Pangloss and Candide. Dr. Pangloss, he's the universal optimist, you know, but he gets confused when bad things happen to him. Syphilis, earthquakes, murder, suffering, it confuses him. Or you're going to be like the Candide. He's a universal skeptic, you know, and he's, he's been cured, he believes, of his optimism. And as a result, he's disheartened by evil. He's disheartened by disease and by earthquakes and by murder and suffering. But if you embrace the truth, you're going to know that your condition is way more desperate. And yet God's kingdom come to you is way more glorious. So three points today that teach us how we come to this. What is salt? What is light, and how do you become it? What is salt, what is light, and how do you become salt and light? First, why salt? What is salt? Verse 13, salt is a preservative, right? It's a preservative, and, it's a, and it enhances flavor. Those are the two functions of salt. Jesus, by calling us salt, 
What he's saying is this. He's implying this. The world is in decay. The world is falling apart. You know, when the world is left to itself, the human condition is such that it goes into a greater state of entropy, greater state of disintegration, falling apart into decay. Everything, everything in the world falls apart. Even if you, think about it, even if you just sit there, turn on the TV and just sit there for a week, just sit and watch TV, and you do nothing, what happens? You're falling apart. You don't even have to do bad things. You don't have to do harmful things. You just sit there, do nothing every day. You're going to gain weight. You're going to get older. You're going to lose hair. Your body is going to fight disease a lot less efficiently. That's decay. That's entropy. Even if you just sit there. It takes a lot of work then, a lot of intense work, you know, to stop that because the principle of the second law of thermodynamics is at work all the time. In fact, what's death? If you think about what death is, death is the peak of entropy because instead of molecules, our molecules in our body integrating with itself or with themselves, they're disintegrating. That's death. That's decay. Relationally, all relationships tend to go bad. It takes a tremendous amount of intentionality and hard work to make a relationship work, to hold a relationship together. That's why races can't get together. That's why races, different races, can't stay together. Marriage, the most intimate type of relationship that you can experience, it takes a lot of work. Ask any married person. It takes a lot of work to keep a marriage together. The minute that you stop working on your marriage, it starts to fall apart. If you look at your psyches, The moment you stop working on your psyche, depression will hit, anxiety will hit. You fall apart, you go to pieces. You're out of sorts, that's what happens. Now, think about this, right? Some of us, we get excited about the end of tyranny. You know, the end of wars. Human advancement, Apple products. You know, we get excited about these. But if you think about it, you know, if the world is all there is and it's constantly in a state of decay, and if you think that the end of tyranny or the advancement of technology is going to make a difference, it doesn't. It doesn't make a difference. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche, German philosopher, you know, famous German philosopher of the 1800s, um, he wrote a famous book, one of his seminal books, called Thus Spake Zarathustra. And Zarathustra, let me tell you a little bit about this book, a little about this man in the story. Zarathustra was a man who secluded himself into the mountains because he wanted to develop or discover an ideal moral society. And in the middle of his search, he abandons the quest. He abandons it. He realizes it's impossible. There is no such thing as morality. And so he leaves the mountains and starts to run down the hills into the cities to proclaiming that, you know, he basically he encounters a hermit. And um, he tells the hermit this new news that he's discovered. God is dead. God is dead. So there's no morality. There's no point in morality. And he goes about the towns and he's proclaiming it. He's holding up a lantern and he's proclaiming that God is dead. And as he's entering into this one town, there's an acrobat on a tightrope. He's walking across from one state to another. And as he's walking up through a series of misfortunes and, uh, you know, uh, unfortunate circumstances, the acrobat tumbles to the ground and dies right in front of Zarathustra. And he's afraid. He's on the verge of death, and he's just a mess, a physical mess, and he's on the verge of death, and he's, and he's speaking. He says, I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of hell. And Zarathustra responds with this. He says, on mine honor, my friend, there is nothing of all whereof thou speakest. There is no devil. There is no hell. Thy soul will be dead even sooner than thy body. 
Fear therefore nothing anymore. The man looked up distrustfully. If thou speakest the truth, said he, I lose nothing when I lose my life. I am not much more than an animal. Not at all, Zarathustra responded. Thou hast made danger thy calling. Therein there is nothing contemptible. What Zarathustra is saying is this. There is no devil. There is no hell because there is no God. God is dead. And as a result, there's no reason to be afraid. There's no reason to be afraid of God. There's no reason to be afraid of hell. And as a result, there's no guilt. There's no shame. And as a result, there's no morality. Why be good? You lose nothing when you die. There's no meaning in life. There's no consequences. You're just like an animal. You're going to come and you're going to go. And any violence you perpetrate is just a part of nature. There's nothing contemptible. Danger is your calling. That's what he's saying. If there's no God, what's the point of morality? We're just, if we're just molecules that have bunched up together to become human beings, then who cares about virtue? Who cares about virtue? If existence is relative, because everything is falling apart, one day you're here, next day you're not, everything is meaningless. Think about it. If you're just a series of chance operations that have taken place to become who you are, then things like beauty, things like relationships, everything, they're just neural impulses, right? And if you believe that, then so is rape. And so is murder. Just neural impulses. Violence is natural. It's natural. It's all a part of the disintegration. It's all a part of the entropy. Life is meaningless. There's no law. Danger is our calling. Now, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, there were no such things as refrigerators. right? They they didn't have fridges back then. So salt was more than a seasoning. You needed, you needed it as a preservative to stem the decay, to stem the tide of decay. If it's falling apart, you put salt in there inside meat. You rubbed it in. You massaged it into meat. It had to get in there to the core so that it would stem the decay. That way the meat would last a longer time. Salt slows down, prevents decay. And, you know, salt by nature, because of its nature, its natural properties, first it has to get in there. It has to get in. It has to immerse. Then because of its physical properties, it's effective. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean by salt's physical properties? Um, if you see someone's life falling apart, you know, somebody's life is falling apart. Someone's in decay relationally. You know, their marriage is falling apart. Or you experience someone who's in heavy debt. Financially, their lives are falling apart. Or somebody who, who just has a really bad disease. You know, physically, they're falling apart. Or they could be in depression. Their psyche has fallen apart. Most of us say, it's natural for us to say, well, I want to pray for him, but I don't really want to get sucked into his life because it's going to drain me. It's going to make me depressed. Jesus says, you are salt. Go in. He doesn't say go everywhere. He doesn't say go into everything. He says, find the areas of decay and go in. And that means if you see a family or a neighborhood or a city, a city that's falling apart, the church has been marked with people who have gone in. Rob, Rodney Stark, one of my favorite books in the last several years, Rodney Stark is a professor of sociology and comparative religion at the University of Washington. He wrote a, a very famous book now, at least, called The Rise of Christianity. It's a scholarly book that basically outlines why he believes Christianity exploded out of the first century. 
And I want to read a little bit about this because what he, basically what he says is that in the time of the plagues, the epidemics, this is how it started. In the, in the 200, 250 AD, there was a series of epidemics that had hit Europe that wiped out pretty much a quarter to a fourth of the population of the world. It's a remarkable, it's a, a huge amount of people. And Rodney Stark says this, let us imagine ourselves in their places, faced with one of these terrible epidemics. Here we are in a city stinking of death. All around us, our family and friends are dropping. And then Stark quotes uh, this bishop, Dionysius, around 260 AD, around the time of the second great plague. Uh, And this is what he wrote about the people and how they responded during the time of the plagues. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and they fled from their dearest, their own people, they fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fateful disease. But then he writes this about the Christian community. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, a number of them elders, deacons, and laymen. In other words, you know, when the plagues hit, everyone was leaving the city because human contact was what you had to avoid. But while everybody else was fleeing the city, Christians went into the city. They went into the city to nurse people back to health. They went into the city to cure and to care, to sacrifice their lives for them. And he writes this, it was a time of unimaginable joy. That's what he writes. Salt goes in. Salt preserves. Salt increases the quality of the flavor of a community. And that's what makes salt very valuable. And yet, it's ordinary. Very ordinary, very common. You know, it's so valuable, yet so ordinary, and it doesn't do anything unless it gets in. It's got to be used. It's got to be spent. It's got to be consumed. Now, light's the same. That's the second point. What is light? In ancient times, there was no electricity. So if you didn't have light, if you didn't have a candle, there was complete darkness at night, pitch black. And if in pitch blackness, if you're trying to navigate around, there was a greater sense of disorientation as opposed to orientation. There was a greater sense of disorder as opposed to order. You stumble around, you bump, you get hurt. There was a sense of vertigo, dislocation. You felt lost in the dark if you didn't even have a candle. And so by Jesus saying, you are the light of the world, what he's saying is, if the world is left to itself, if the world is left to itself, it's similar to a, to a house without light. You're in complete darkness, utter darkness. But he says, a Christian is the light of the world. In ancient times, there was no electricity, right? So a Christian is the light of the world. Jesus says, verse 14, you are the light of the world. You are like a city on a hill. Verse 15, you are basically like a lamp on its stand. Why a city? Why a lamp? 
you know, you notice, sons, he doesn't say, you know, he doesn't talk about um, what type of light you are. You know, your city on a hill, he says. Rarely was a city built on a hill. It was too expensive to bring all the materials up to the hill and build these cities. So most of the time, because of the cost and because of the, uh, the, the amount of work that it would take, cities were built near rivers or in ravines or down in valleys, you know, at the base of a hill. But if a city was on a hill, if a city was on a hill at night, lamps would light the homes in the city. And if you stood afar because of, you know, from the city on a hill, it would light the area for miles. From miles, people would be able to walk and navigate their way to the city. And Jesus says, you are a city on a hill. You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. You know, um, the city that illuminates, you know, that's illumined by the light for miles. He doesn't tell us what kind of light we are. You know, he doesn't say you are the sun. He doesn't say you are the stars. That's not what he says. You know, and the reason why is because stars and suns, they produce their own light. They generate their own light. He says you are more like a city on a hill. You are more like a lamp that's put on a stand. You know, lamps depend on fuel for energy. Lamps depend on a source outside of itself. All the, you know, a sun is a source of light. A sun generates light. But a lamp, it's really just an enclosed wick. It holds, it contains light. We have to remember that Jesus is not talking uh, to one person here. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to a lot of people. And so when he's talking to them, he's talking to them in plural. You, the church, are the light of the world. You're a counterculture. You need to be a city of people holding the light of life up so that people can see for miles, so that people can see from miles, so that people all over the world can see. Think about it. Some of you work. You spend most of your day in an office setting. And in an office setting, um, if you think about it, if you step outside of your office, how many different ethnicity groups are represented outside of your office? You know, at least, I would say some of you, at least a dozen in the upwards of 20 different language groups are represented outside of your office alone. What that means is you being the city on a hill, the light of the world, what does that mean? People can see from thousands of miles with all the language groups that are represented. For thousands of miles they can see. That's what that means. All the rest of the the Sermon on the Mount really tells us what a city on a hill looks like, what a Christian actually looks like, what salt and light actually look like, how Christians deal with sex, how Christians deal with money, how Christians deal with relationships. You know, if the world around, you know, doesn't see you basically living differently than anyone else, then you're not light, then you're not salt. You're not part of the city on a hill. When you're in darkness there is a sense of disorientation. To say that Christians are light then means that we bring hope. We bring joy. We bring an orientation. We bring navigation. We bring location. We give you a sense of who you are, you know, where you're headed and how to get there. That's what Christians do. They give people a sense of who they really are. 
where they're headed and how to get there. Without the light of Christ, it's a dark, dark world. But the gospel of the kingdom tells us this. One day, all of reality today as we know it will come to an end. And a greater reality, a reality that has been real before reality has come. Every single one of our greatest, deepest desires will be fulfilled because we're saved by grace alone. Christians live in light of that. In that light, it can navigate us in the darkest times. It can help us navigate other people through the darkest of times. The darkness doesn't shape us. That's the reason why. We're shaping ourselves in light of the light. You know, in the darkness, no matter how beautiful a person is, in the dark, you can't tell, right? You can't tell. You can't make out that person. But when there's light, you can see. So light is truth. Light is truth. Light is the deeper reality. That truth, Jesus says, is a truth that needs to shape us. That's light. How does it shape us? Last point. John chapter 8. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The salt and light is Jesus himself. Jesus is light. And you, if you're lit by Jesus, you contain him. You, co- you hold him. What is light? Light is beauty. Light is beautiful. It's attractive. And that means Jesus is glorious. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus never lies. Jesus is always faithful. Jesus never cheats. Jesus always is truthful. Light is truth. Light is reality. Jesus is truth. He illumines us. You know what that means when he illumines us? He exposes us. He reveals who we really are. He interprets our world for us in a way that it's real. He exposes sin. He exposes the way the world really is. He interprets our brokenness. He interprets our reality. He interprets our suffering. That's what light does. Light guides. Light navigates. Light gives life. Today, right now, at this moment, if the sun burned out, all of life as we know it would cease to exist. So light is life. Light is life. There's no light. Everybody would die. And light is the basis then by which we see everything else. Imagine if you're in a dark room. You know, if you're in a dark room, what do you do? You're stumbling around. You get hurt. But if there's just one single pure light that enters into that room, your eyes adjust to that light. And your navigation adjusts in accordance with that light. That's what light does. We reorient our lives in accordance with that light. Just a little bit. That's all it takes. Just a little bit. And you won't stumble. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what he says. Now, people hate that, you know, because if we're implying that Jesus is light, that means that every other thing that we've followed as light is really false light. It's not true light. You know, and people say today, you know, all religions are equally valid. So, you know, uh, you know, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say that. You know, and people hate that. They say, you know, I, I, how dare you proselytize? How dare you evangelize to me? You know, stop doing that. Stop evangelizing. Stop, stop your proselytizing because all religions are equally valid. And what they're really saying is, I have an understanding of reality that's greater than yours. You know what they're doing? They're proselytizing. If you're doing that, you're proselytizing. You're still evangelizing. Every one of us today lives in accordance with our light, our version of reality. Every one of us is doing that. 
And every one of us, by nature, is proselytizing that. Either A, you're saying Jesus is light, or you're saying, you know what, stop doing that. Either way, both of you are proselytizing. You can't help it. Listen, if either, either Jesus is salt, you know, and that means he will prevent decay of our souls, or he's not. Very simple. You know, if Jesus is salt, then all things hold together. They're integrated in him. That means only he can renew. If Jesus is light, then only he is the way. Only he is the truth, because light is truth. Light is life. Only he is the life. Only his word is trustworthy. That's good news. That's actually good news. It's good news for our psyches. It's good news for our relationships. In the end, it's even good news for our bodies because Jesus promises we will have renewed bodies. We will have perfected bodies. And if you believe in Jesus, you become that salt. You become that light. Light has come in to our lives. And as a result, we become that salt. We become that light. Now we say, well, that's really inspiring. That's really inspiring. That sounds great. But what we really should say is that scares me to death. That really, we should be apprehensive about that. Why, does that. why should we be apprehensive about that? Salt, to say that the salt has come in means that we are in decay. That's scary. To say that light has come in, that means it exposes darkness. That means we're in darkness. That should be scary to us. That should be scary. That means we have to admit the prerequisite to getting salt and light is to admit that we are in decay, we are in darkness. Because salt and light exist to enhance, to illumine in the decay, in the darkness. That's it. What that means is there's going to be problems. Have you ever helped an addict in your life? Have you ever helped a troubled child? You know, they say, I hate you. Leave me alone. That's what they say to you. Yet salt and light brings new life, brings hope, brings joy to all people. It enhances the flavor of their lives. It's beautiful in their lives. If the gospel has changed you, if the light is in you, it will enhance the flavor of people around you, the beauty of the people around you. Just being present in the world, it enhances, it accents, it advances, it clarifies without any corruption. And when you live that kind of a life without corruption, there's joy all around you, all around you. And you can't do it alone. You know, we just experienced multiple snowstorms. No one throws one bit of salt on the ground, right? No, not one grain. Salt has to come in spurts, Right? Light has to come in beams. It always comes in beams. It travels in beams. You have to be doing it together. Community. We need community. This is my plug. You know what I'm going to say. You've got to plug into a community group. Get into a community group. Get to know people. You have to get to know. With, uh, you have to connect with other people in a deep way. The salt has to get in and massage into your souls together. That's how, once it comes in, then you become salt and light. You have to do it together doesn't happen alone you know augustine saint augustine um, says the church is the alternate city within the city and what that means is the way you do business the way you carry out your professions the way you make music the way you do church the way you relate to one another we are the colony of the kingdom in the city we're an alternate city within the city we're a city within the city. So what that means is that light 
makes things beautiful when it comes in contact with other things. So we're going to reveal dishonesty. You're going to reveal gossip just by you being who you are. You're going, to be, you're going to reveal dishonesty and gossip and racism and promiscuity and corruption and greed simply by not partaking in those things. You are helping that part of the world be better. You're accenting it. You know, and, and no one's going to notice that. You know, if you're doing that in a way where people feel, you know, like apprehensive towards you, you're not being salt. You're not being light. You know why? If they notice you, you're not being salt. You're not being light. You know why? When's the last time you've had a meal and you said, wow, that's pretty good salt? You've never said that in your life. When's the last time you, 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 you took a picture or you looked at some, some pictures of something, the Grand Canyon, something that's awe-inspiring? You say, wow, the, you know, the light is so beautiful. You don't say that. You say, wow, that light makes, was perfect to make this scenery breathtaking. That's what we say. We say amazing flavor. You know, that scenery is breathtaking. Verse 13, if the salt loses its saltiness it's useless it's worthless you throw it away and it gets trampled under people's feet so that third point is you know we're coming right back to the point how is saltiness restored how do you get it in your call to worship this morning we read philippians chapter 2 and philippians chapter 2 is about jesus jesus who lowered himself he came in that's what it means Jesus lowered himself, you know, and he came in. He immersed. You know what that means? You know, that means he became salt. Jesus became salt. But John chapter 1 says this, John chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. What that means is this. Jesus came into the darkness. He is the light. He is the light of the world. He came into the darkness. Uh, He became touchable. He became accessible. He makes things beautiful, but rather than reorienting our lives, rather than our eyes readjusting to the light, we were confused by the light. We rejected the light, and ultimately, we killed him. The one time that God made himself completely and utterly accessible to man, we killed him. That's what happened. In other words, you know, Jesus, only he preserves, and yet he was not spared. Only he can stem our decay. And yet, he decayed. On the cross, he died a dishonorable death. You know what that means? You know, the cross was only reserved for people who died dishonorable deaths. That means we disdain these people. That means Jesus was thrown away. He was trampled under people's feet. The most valuable salt that ever walked the earth. And yet, he was treated as useless and worthless. Trampled under our feet. Jesus is the light of the world. Hebrews chapter 1 says he is the exact radiance of the glory of God. But on the cross, all around him was entropy. All around him, as his body was falling apart, all around him was entropy. People were jeering at him. People were mourning around him. He was enveloped in darkness at death. It said that there was darkness that came over him. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is this, I am now falling apart. I am disintegrating. Entropy is taking place not only in my body. I was stretched out, my arms, my body, the blood pouring out. I was experiencing entropy in my body. But my God had turned himself away from me. My soul 
is disintegrating. My soul, my body, my soul is dislocated from God. I'm no longer with the Father. That's what he's saying. I've been forsaken. I'm used. I'm spent like salt. I'm consumed. I've been trampled by men, but when God has forsaken me, I've been trampled by God. And as a result, tombs opened up, the dead came out, rocks split open, earthquake, an earthquake took place as he died. All around him, everything was falling apart. Disintegration, darkness, Jesus, our salt and our light. Do you believe in him? Because the gospel is good news. It doesn't say you, you know, Humpty Dumpty fell apart, right? I don't, I don't remember the nursery rhyme. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. He had a great fall. You know, nobody can put him back together again. You can spend your entire life trying to put yourself back together. But Jesus says this, the good news has come. I have come into the world. You walk with me, you will be in the light. Only I can put your life back together again. Do you believe him? Do you believe in him? Do you trust what he says? Do you trust him, what he's done? If you do, you will become salt and light. Do you believe that? You know, Moses was on Mount Sinai and he received the law from God and he encountered God on the mountain. He saw the light, the Shekinah glory of God. And when he came down, the people saw him and it said that his face was radiant. He was shining. That's the church. Will you be the church to go out tomorrow into your office space? To go out tomorrow, you know, the office space is the lamp then. You are the light of the world. Will you contain the light that is inside and display and demonstrate it? Will you do that? We were empowered to do that. If you just try to do that on your own, you will fail and you'll be disappointed and you'll be guilty. But will you look to Christ, the ultimate salt, the ultimate light that was snuffed out and trampled under our feet so that we could be put on a lamp and displayed, displaying the glory and the honor that is God. Will you do that? Let's pray.